Romans chapter 6, reading from verse 13, Paul continues, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let me lead us in prayer before we turn to God's word. Father in heaven, this is your word. Help us to treat it that way. Help me to be clear. Help all of us to have open ears, soft hearts. And please, would you change us by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our series on Romans. You may have been expecting chapter 7 to be covered this week. Um, uh, I am going to do that next week. I'm not wriggling out of chapter 7, even though there are some hard bits in there. But actually, we're going to pick up where we got to last Sunday, and we got up to 6 verse 14 last Sunday, and we're going to pick it up there because the the questions that Paul is addressing at this stage in Romans are so important. I sat in my study thinking, could we just skip the back half of 6 and just get on into 7? And I thought, no. This question is so important. You'll see on the um, service sheet there's an outline. Uh, which has the big question in bold at the top. The big question Paul's tackling, if you live under grace, are you free to sin? As Robin said, that question starts off chapter 6, 6 verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And it's repeated in 6.15 with a tiny, tiny variation. 6.15, are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? It's a huge question. Paul asks it twice. Gives us a whole chapter of Romans on it, and so we're going to spend another week thinking about it. To help us see what a big question it is, I want to tell you about a conversation with my hairdresser. Um, Now, 
maybe like many men, maybe like some women, I don't, I don't know. I don't particularly like getting my hair cut. Um, but the, que- the, the conversations I get into at the hairdresser um, are remarkable. Um, I think because of my job. So the first question comes out, oh, what do you do? And I say, I'm a minister. And they say, a mi- oh, of, of a church, like a church minister. I admit that I am. And from them, the conversation is always interesting, and whatever happens. Um, here's what happened to, to my new Edinburgh hairdresser. Um, she said, what kind of church is Chalmers? It's a good question, isn't it? What kind of church is Chalmers? Maybe if you're new to Edinburgh, your family from back home or your friends are asking that. What kind of church is Chalmers? I hope as we get to know the kind of Morningside community, as we, as we spend money in the cafes and restaurants, we'll be chatting to people, and they'll be asking us, oh, there's a new church meeting up, up the top of the road in the old Napier building. What kind of church is Chalmers? It's a good idea to have, a, have an answer prepared for that question. Um, I wasn't prepared, but the clippers were kind of buzzing, number three, around the back and sides, and I was thinking, what do I say? Um, I thought I, I could tell our recent history, the kind of painful and yet providential story of how God has brought us into this building. I, I could say that. In the end, I went for something different, because that's not what actually defines us those last five years. I went for we're a Bible-believing church. We're a church who tries to take the Bible really seriously. I actually told my hairdresser, we have our Bibles open. We, we hand them out at the front, and hopefully you're all sitting there on page uh, 942, if you've closed it. 942, Bible open, to check that what I'm saying is actually what God's saying in Scripture. She was really surprised by that. What? You want people to check? Yes, because we're not trying to just give our opinions as the leadership All of us, including the leadership, are trying to listen to the Lord Jesus, the shepherd of his church, the king of the world. So I said we're a Bible-believing, Bible-centered church. Um, And that got into interesting questions. She said, is Jesus God then? And then I was trying to explain both the Trinity and my hair preferences. (laughs) I didn't do a good job of either, to be honest. Um, But actually, as I reflected on that conversation, I actually wish I'd started somewhere else. It's not a bad thing to say we're a Bible-centered church. We love the Holy Spirit here at Chalmers, and the Holy Spirit wrote this word, breathed it out. It's a great thing to say. But I wish I'd just started with the gospel message, the message we've been hearing in Romans. I wish when she'd asked that, I'd said, we are a church that believes Jesus alone can save the world. I wish I'd said that. Jesus alone can save the world, like we've been seeing all through Romans um, so far, by which I mean only Jesus can save the world, only he can deal with our our sin problem, and Jesus alone, him alone, he is enough. Trust Jesus, and that's enough. We as a church are a group of people who admit we have a problem, we're sinners facing a holy, righteous God, and we trust that Jesus deals with it, 100%. Not Jesus plus church attendance or going to Mass. Not Jesus plus uh, making sure I hit a certain moral standard. Not Jesus plus anything. Trust in Jesus is enough. That defines us as a church. I wish I'd said that. And I would love to have known what she would have said back. I guess the clippers would have stopped. And she would have said something like, hang on, you're saying you're forgiven not just backwards, wipe the slate clean, but forwards. You're saying that right now you can be sure that you'll be safe on Judgment Day. Right now you're saying whatever happens tomorrow, even if you mess up tomorrow, do something bad tomorrow, that that God will still think you're righteous. Still say you're in the right with me. That's what your church believes. Isn't that a bit dangerous? I wonder if that question would have come up. She may have asked it. I'm sure some of her customers would have asked it. As, as we chatted, she, she talks about different people she has in her chairs, different worldviews that sit down and chat to her. And so as a Muslim customer, and with a real commitment to the five pillars of Islam, God's forgiveness plus my performance in those five areas, that's what will give me confidence on the final day. And there, there's other customers, a, a Jew committed to keeping Torah. An agnostic, actually, who who still tries to live a good life, just in case God's there. 
Christianity is the only worldview, the only belief system on the, on the planet where entirely trusting someone else is what makes me right before God. Isn't it a bit dangerous? This year's the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. That was one of the things that Martin Luther got uh, asked or accused Uh, and the other reformers, isn't it a bit dangerous, this gospel you're saying Romans says? Christ alone, justification by faith alone in him. Surely that encourages people to sin. And of course, the question didn't first appear in Edinburgh or in Rome 500 years ago. It occurred as soon as Paul was teaching his gospel. If you've understood his gospel properly, this is one of the questions that comes up. It's why chapter 6 addresses it and why we're taking a second week um, to tackle it. And you'll all know, if you're Christian here, that it's not just a theoretical question. We thought last week, in those moments of temptation, those lonely moments, when you're sitting there or standing there or wherever it is, and the thought comes into your head, shall I sin? The second thought that often comes into a Christian's head is, would it make any difference? Have you thought that? God's going to think of me the same way, even if I do this, because I'm united to Jesus. His righteousness covers me. So does it really matter? Maybe I should just sin and say sorry tomorrow. It's a huge question. If you live under grace, are you free to sin? Because um, this week builds on last week, I'm going to recap the first half of chapter 6, and then we'll go on into our passage. And you'll see on the handout there's um, various notes to help us follow. Um, So chapter 6, verse 1, we get that question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Um, and, And both times Paul asks that, he immediately gives the answer, no, absolutely not. By no means, in no way, are Christians free to sin. But we need to understand why. So let's look at last week's answer, and then we'll look at this week's answer. Verse 6 gives us, 6 verse 6 gives us last week's answer. It's all about the fact we've been united with Jesus in his death and resurrection. The whole point of Jesus dying was to put an end to our old sinful ways. Look at verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with Jesus in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. The whole point of the cross was to get rid of sin. So why would you go back? Or verse uh, 4. What was the point of the resurrection, verse 4? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus came, died, and rose again, not just to excuse our sin, but to kill it, to actually get rid of it, to bring it to nothing, to start new lives for us, lives of righteousness and holiness. It's such a fundamental idea. I'm going to give us a diagram. Um, I don't know if you like diagrams, but you're going to get one this time. Um, So we've seen, this is chapter 5. We'll we'll take a run-up to our passage. Chapter 5, there are two humanities. Um, So there's a humanity in Adam, and there's a humanity in Jesus Christ. Um, And we all start in Adam's humanity. That's where we all start, which is characterized by sin. He started it by sinning, um, and that leads to death. That's Adam's world. Sin, his sin, leads to death for everyone. And we all share that. We share the death and we share his sinning. All of us sin, just like Grandpa Adam. That's what Romans 1 to 3 were saying. Jews sin and non-Jews sin as well. All of us. And actually, Jews aren't any better because the law they were given, which sets out God's standards, just increased the trespass. That is, it, it just gave them something to rebel against, something to show how sinful we really are. Um, So all of us deserve condemnation. That's where humans start. Um, If you just joined us for Romans, um, I know that's not comfortable to hear, but it is credible. It is credible. 
All of us sin, and the statistics for death, I don't know if you've looked them up, it's 10 in 10, 100 in 100, 1,000 in 1,000, a million in a million, a billion in a billion. I haven't actually looked up how many humans have ever lived, but the stats are one for one. Apart from the Lord Jesus, there's one exception, the Lord Jesus' realm. He started a realm uh, begun by his obedience, He started a realm with grace and justification and life, a completely different humanity, Uh, a a world of abundant grace won by his obedience, a a world where there is full justification, we're declared right before God, and wonderfully a world ending, a realm ending in eternal life. That is, for Christians... All the consequences of Adam's law-breaking and all the consequences of Israel's law-breaking and all the consequences of our personal law-breaking, our personal rebellion against God, have been overturned. No longer condemnation, but justification. No longer death, but life. We are covered by Christ. We live in him. But the big question, of course, is, is it okay to sin? If we're in, in Christ's realm, is it okay to sin? Because we're covered. The consequences aren't there anymore. Paid for. No, says Paul, chapter 6, 1 to 10. You used to be a sinner, like Grandpa Adam, a lawbreaker, a condemned criminal, but that's the old self. That self died with Christ. So that little stick man is the old me. Sorry, the words are small, but that's the old me. But now I've been united with Christ in his death on the cross. And so you'll see some arrows coming up showing how we've um, moved. The, The flat guy is dead. We died at the cross. The old me died at the cross. And there is a new me that has been raised with Jesus, a new kind of humanity in the realm of righteousness, of obedience, of eternal life. And so, consider yourselves, 6 verse 11, consider yourselves, in fact, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you see how that works? Chapter 5 says there are only two humanities. Chapter 6 says Jesus died to get you out of the old one, and he rose again to get you into the new one. You're united with him in this new kind of living, this new world, this new realm of righteousness. So consider yourselves no longer a sinner in Adam's team, but righteous with the Lord Jesus, united to him. And so offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Verse 12, don't let sin reign in your bodies. Present everything you are to God in his service. That was last week. Um, We've been united with Jesus, so our old self is dead, died with Christ. Our new self, risen with Christ, is how we're to consider our lives. And in our passage, we're going to get another two contrasts, two more contrasts, as Paul kind of fleshes that out, helps us get our heads around that big theological point. And they're going to appear on the screen. So we used to have an old master... Now we have a new master. And then 7, 1 to 6 talks about we used to have an old spouse. Now we've got a new spouse, a better spouse. Um, I'm sad to say we're not going to get time for point two today. Um, I cut it on Friday uh, so I wouldn't keep here all morning. And we'll tackle that next week. We're only going to tackle our better master this time, 6, 15 to 23. So let's dive in. To see, we'll come back to the diagram later, but let's dive in to see um, in the text this better master we have. So, 6 verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under the law but under grace? By no means. Why? Well, because there's a better master, a brilliant master. This is a really important point. When Christians are freed from sin... It's not that we have no master anymore, but we have a better master. 
I'm sad to say there are uh, evangelistic courses, there are invitations to become a Christian that make it sound like that. You've been, you've been under the mastery of sin, uh, come out and you can kind of, you're free to yourself. No, that's not true at all. The gospel of grace says you were, f- you were under a horrible master, come to Jesus, get a better master. Not self-determination, but a brilliant, better master. Just look at how verse 17 captures that. Verse 17. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've committed. That's the gospel. And, verse 18, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. So you used to have an old master called sin. You could do nothing but sin, actually, following Adam's footsteps, every action, every word, every thought, every deed. It was actually characterized by sin. We might say, hang on, hang on, hang on. People do good things. Yeah, but even the good things are often characterized by pride, looking down on others because they don't do those good things, depending on myself for the strength to do those things, doing them to my glory. As Romans 1 told us, we take God's good gifts and we make them God's. And so God hands us over. Sometimes we're so enslaved to sin before becoming Christian, we don't even realize it's bad. We just believe the lies of our master as he gives us stuff to do. Oh yeah, that sounds good, that sounds good, that sounds good. You were a slave to sin, says Paul, but, verse 17, thanks be to God, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient to a new master. You've been set free from sin, verse 18. You've become slaves of righteousness. So notice that. Becoming a Christian does not mean a step out of sin slavery into self-determination. It's a bit like Israel when they left Egypt. Horrible, horrible life they had in Egypt. Awful master, Pharaoh, not a good boss. When they left Egypt, it wasn't that they just were like, okay, head whichever direction you want into the desert. God said, no, you were serving Pharaoh and I've pulled you out to serve me and I am good. I'm a great boss, a great master. I want to do you good. When the wonky Adamic steering lock on on the kind of steering wheel of our lives gets broken by the gospel, it's not that we suddenly think, right, I can drive wherever I want. We say, oh, Jesus, take the wheel. You know where to go. That's the obedience of faith. It says Jesus is Lord now. Now, Paul points out, verse 19, that this is a kind of human illustration, but it is such a helpful illustration. Slavery, boss, employment, who do you work for? Such a helpful illustration. I hope it's something we hold in our heads, not just today and this week, but for the rest of our Christian lives. Who am I working for? Who is my boss? Who actually is the boss? Just, just look through the passage. Who, who is it we work for? Slightly confusing, because in, in verse 18, we become slaves of righteousness. But back in verse 13, we're to present ourselves to God as our boss. Or um, down in verse 22... Now you've been set free from sin. You've become slaves of God. Who's the boss? Well, hopefully it's not too hard to work out. God is our boss, but when you work for God, your line manager is righteousness. The kind of work you're doing is righteousness work. You're in the righteousness team because the ultimate boss is now God, not sin. And Paul wants us to be thinking about this so that we turn up to work for the right boss each day, each hour. We have to listen to the right boss. Um, I I can really relate to this. Lots of you know I've recently started a job, a new job, here at Chalmers. Um, And I know some of you actually uh, have just faced or are facing big changes in life, whether it's retirement or um, a change of role, you've just left a company. let me, let me tell you, it is considered very odd behavior to turn up at your old desk. 
when, you, when you've left the company, even when you've changed teams. I'm pleased to say on my first day at Chalmers, I did turn up at the right office. I went to, to Ratcliffe Road where we used to have an office and it's now moved onto site at church. So I'm a little bit worried. Jess will tell you I'm, I'm very absent-minded. So it's almost certain that at some point I will try and get into Ratcliffe Terrace. Um, but at least, because I moved up to Scotland for this job, at least it's unlikely for me to go back to my old employer. Just imagine it. You'd hope at some point on the train to London, it would occur to me, hang on, Tuesday's staff meeting, I am going to the wrong place. I, I'm, I'm in danger of, of, well, I'm in danger of re-enslaving myself. Not that it was slavery, let me just put that on the record, but it was a good, it was a good job. But I'm in danger of going back to my old boss, listening to what he says at staff meeting, starting to put my energies and my efforts and my time into doing his work. And if I did do that, if you saw me every morning at Waverley Station heading off and, and coming back really tired, busy day again, you'd rightly say to me, verse um, 16, do you not know if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves. You're re-enslaving yourself. It's like you haven't left your job. How do you expect to work for Chalmers while you're getting the train back to London, doing whatever they say? When they phone up and say, oh, I've just got, just got a little bit, can you just finish this off for me? Can you just do this? Well, no, actually. Thanks be to God, verse 17. You who were once slaves of sin are not. Verse 18, you've been set free to become slaves of righteousness. And it is thanks be to God, because our old job was awful. We're going to think more about that um, towards the end. But our old job was awful. Not actually like mine in London. I quite enjoyed it. It was good. Our old job is awful, as well as our new job being brilliant. And so verse 19. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Each day, says Paul, turn up to work for righteousness. You wake up each morning, over breakfast, in the office or at home, with your mates or with your children, with your neighbours, in your bedroom, out for drinks, Wherever you are, whatever moment it is where the old boss gives you a call and whispers down the line, I've got a bit more work for you to do. Just, just one more job. The Christian says, that is not me anymore. I died to sin. Jesus died to bring that whole job, that whole life to nothing. You're not my boss. I've got a different master, a better master. And so it is the same application we were talking about last week. Do you remember last week, verse 12, 6 verse 12? Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Don't let sin reign. Christ crucified is no longer officially on the throne, has no official authority, so don't let it climb back up there. It belongs in Adam's world, not Christ's. And similarly, verse 16, don't let Sin, boss you around. Don't re-enslave yourself. You've got a new master. And specifically, verse 19. Again, this is an echo. We, we had similar in verses 13 and 14. Verse 19, don't use your members for your old boss. Members is a slightly weird word, isn't it? Um, I don't think it's just talking about our limbs. I think it's talking about every part of us, every kind of faculty of us. So he's saying, your mind, your heart, your mouth, your eyes, your hands, your feet, where you go, what you do, how you think, what you say. Don't serve your old master with it. That's our big take-home point today. And in a moment, as I said, we are going to think about how much better that master is. Point B, your righteous master is better um, but just before we do, I think already there are probably a number of big questions that's raised. Um, the most pressing one, which may be the one on your mind, is um, what if I do? <laughs> what if I do find myself sinning? 
what if I have, or this today, or this week, or what if tomorrow I, I find myself um, giving in to this old master? Does that mean I'm not really a Christian? Can real Christians struggle with repeated sins? The answer to that is yes. Real Christians can struggle with repeated sins. And to the question, does battling a sin mean you're not a Christian? The answer is no. In fact, a real desire to fight sin is one of the signs you are a Christian, an awareness that things are wrong and and you want to repent from them. That is the sign you are a genuine Christian. There is a fight, and and in chapter 7, we're going to see how intense that fight can be from Paul's example. Even Paul the Apostle wasn't perfect. He was battling. There is a fight. Seven will give us the kind of realism. Sometimes it, it, it feels like defeat. But six gives us the optimism that it is a fight where we have the advantage. Our master has, our old master has no authority, actually. No right when he rings the phone. That's one question that pops up. Um, though actually, I wonder if a bigger question should be the other way around. A bigger question should be, why do we even need to be told to be good? Why isn't it automatic that we now live for righteousness? Why doesn't living for righteousness come easily? You might be thinking, what, what a kind of ridiculous question. Of course we find it hard. Of, of, like anyone who's a Christian will know, we battle temptations. How can you say, why isn't it automatic? All of us need to be told this, we're thinking. But, but why do we need to be told it? Here's the thing. Theologically, why are we struggling with sin still? If we've really died with Christ... And if we've really risen with Christ into his new humanity of righteousness, obedience, grace, eternal life, why are we still struggling with Adam's sin, tugging tugging us? To help us think about that, let's get the diagram back up. So Paul, I I thought you said there were two humanities with a big gulf between them. And you said that we all start in Adam. That's the old me. That's where I began. But, but now we've been raised by Christ into a new life. We've been released from the old master of sin. We have a new master of righteousness. In fact, um, in chapter 7, verse 4, we, we hear that we've been married to Jesus. And in verse 6, we're told that we have his spirit. Chapter 7, verse 6. Just look at that. We now serve in the new way of the Spirit. Now, I don't know if you get excited about uh, being given the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts, but if we knew the Old Testament, that would be the biggest promise in the Bible, that this moment when God, by his Spirit, is going to change our hearts. Jeremiah and Ezekiel talk about it. They talk about our old sinful heart being taken out, the heart of stone, and a new Um, sin-free, obedient heart being put in. Talk about the laws of God being written on our hearts. So then, if we've got the Spirit, if we've died to Adam's old way, that's our old self, if we're now united to Jesus in his new humanity, why doesn't it just happen? Why does Paul need to command us to fight sin and to live for righteousness? That's a really good question to be thinking about. It's a question that gets to the heart of this whole section of Romans. This is a section where Paul helps us as justified people in a broken world understand our puzzling experience. What's going on? I thought everything had been fixed. I thought the gospel was the solution to our big problems. We were sinners facing death. But 
Jesus dealt with the sin, dealt with God's anger. So why are we still dying? We were sinners walking like Adam. But Jesus has got us out of there. That old self died at the cross. So, so why am I finding it hard to be righteous if I've got the Spirit and I've been raised with Christ? Why are we suffering? That was chapter 5. If God's now for us, we're not his enemies. It's a big question. And the answer is that our bodies and this whole created order have not yet caught up with our status in Jesus. Let me say that again. Our bodies and this whole created order have not yet caught up with our status in Jesus. To put that in the terms of our diagram, that diagram is absolutely true. That's chapters 5 and the fir- and first half of chapter 6. Um, there are two humanities. We did die and come out of Adam's humanity, and we are united to Jesus in his resurrection into a new realm. That's, that's true theologically, but experientially, just at the moment, the diagram looks more like this. That's how things feel at the moment. So the little me is still there. Um, now, you probably can't see from here. Um, the word me is in light blue because the real me belongs to Jesus' kingdom. That's where we really are, united to him. But my body is still in grey, still Adamic, still dying, still suffering, still tugging away towards sin. There's an overlap of Jesus' kingdom and the kingdom of Adam. These two humanities currently coexist. Just so you know, I'm not making that up. Let's look through a few verses to see that's what's going on. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 5. Chapter 6, verse 5. And I want you to spot the tenses of the verbs. Notice what has happened and what's still to happen. So 6, verse 5. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like this, like his. We have died, we will certainly be raised like him, live like him. I.e., when it comes to our physical experience, our resurrection life, our resurrection bodies haven't arrived yet. Jesus is the first fruits who's begun the new world, but we haven't yet physically been raised with him. We still live in broken Adamic bodies. We live in a broken creation. And verse 6 verse 8 says the same thing, but flick across to chapter 7 verse 24. 7 verse 24, this is Paul battling sin. 7 verse 24, Paul battling sin. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul's still battling his sinful flesh, his body of death, his Adamic humanity. Look across to chapter 8, verse 9 to 12. Chapter 8, verse 9 to 12. Uh, Actually, verse 10. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He will give. Do you see what, what's going on here? Our full future, our, sorry, our full resurrection is future. We still inhabit sinful bodies. Now, this isn't some kind of weird dualism. It's not like some kind of platonic idea where the bodies are really bad and the spirit's really good and we should just forget about everything physical and only concentrate on the inner, inner stuff, the spirit. It's not that at all. Um, the new creation is physical. Our new resurrection bodies, like Jesus', are physical 
they're just not here yet. That makes sense? Just hasn't arrived. This world is badly broken, and God hasn't yet fixed it. So there's suffering, and there's death. Our bodies are badly broken in Adam, and they're not yet fixed. So there's suffering, and there's death, and there's a battle with sin. If you know chapter 8, we won't turn there, um, well you can if you want, but uh, chapter 8 verse um, 22 talks about how the whole creation is groaning together in pains of childbirth. Then it says, not only the creation is groaning, but we ourselves are groaning as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our... Anyone know the word? What, what, What are we waiting eagerly for the redemption of? Not just our hospitals, our bodies. We're waiting to be fixed properly, fully, finally. That is, there's a now and a not yet about Jesus' kingdom. We're totally united with him, but in our experience, we don't feel it. We don't, we don't, um, we don't experience the, the removal of suffering, the removal of death, and the full removal of sin. Um, that may all sound like that was, whoa, that was all a bit heavy and theological. Whoa, do we really need to know that as Christians? Um, but that's the reason why sin still picks up the phone. It's really struck me this week. Before I was a Christian, I had no choice. There was only one master on the line, and it was sin. And I did what it said. In the new creation, in glory, in Revelation 21, nothing impure enters God's kingdom. There's no choice, actually. Righteousness leads us, we do what it says, and there's no battle. And we look forward to that day. Only at this time of our lives, this stage of salvation history, this time of our lives, there are two masters on the phone, two bosses vying for our attention and our lives. One of them's our real boss, the Lord Jesus, righteousness. The other one's, he's been, he's been sacked. He he's, he's no longer has any authority, and yet he still rings. We still live in bodies of death. That's why he says, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God, that big arrow, um, which may or may not appear on the, on the um, thingy. He has to say, consider yourselves and offer yourselves to your new master. Consider yourselves alive in Jesus. Consider, think of yourselves as in the new creation. He has to tell us it because we don't feel it automatically. There's an overlap. There's a choice at the moment. Who will you live for? Will you live as your old way or your new self? And Paul wants to help us with that choice, which is why the last three verses of our passage, 20 to 23, talk about how much better our master is. We'll be brief here. Um, Let's think about how much better our master is from verse 20. I'll read the verses. Verse 20. When you were slaves to sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, but what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death, but now you've have, you have been set free from sin and you've become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I've said, in this overlap, we all face a choice. Which boss do you work for? In a timesheet of your week, How many hours go to the new boss, righteousness? How many hours are going to go to sin? Paul wants zero to be the answer to that second question. Not that it will be, we're all battling, but he wants it and and we should want it to be. And as we think, what kind of boss do we have now? That will help us. As we think, what kind of boss did we have? How good a master was sin? That will help us. So let's have a look. What kind of boss was sin? Paul says, take a good hard look at your old boss. Verse 21. What did your work involve? 
Well, it involved things of which you are now ashamed. Sin got us to do things that when we look back, we're ashamed of. That's my experience. I look, I look back at times um, of my life where I've kind of lived for myself. I've, I've um, given in to sin at times. And I, I have deep shame thinking about them. The way I treated God. The way I treated others. I still think about areas of sin, kind of bat- regular ongoing battles. Um, things like the battle with cowardice the battle with pride, the battle with just plain old self-centeredness, caring more about myself than anyone else. And in the cold light of day, I am ashamed of that. Obviously, the devil runs a a massive media campaign to say that sin is actually really appealing. So we get a lot of voices saying, giving into temptation will be good for you. God is a spoil sport. He doesn't give good gifts. The good life is really the sinful life. And of course, it's a lie we've been falling for since the garden with Adam. But when you take a good look at sin, a good, cold, hard look, it's full of shameful things. And and the pay, the reward package, the remuneration, verse 21, or the end of those things is dead. In fact, the only positive thing you can say about working for sin is that the wages always arrive. Really good payroll. Never makes a mistake. Has to be, actually, because it's underwritten by God's promise. God promised Adam, if you disobey my voice, you'll surely die. He promised Israel, if you break my law, you'll surely die. And that promise underwrites the wages that sin pays out. Every time, every month, every life, death. That's the kind of boss. Come and do these shameful things for me, and I'll pay you with death. And obviously the evidence is all around us. A hundred out of a hundred, ten out of ten, one out of one. Verse 20 says the only freedom we had in our old job, any kind of freedom we had was being free in regard to righteousness. Great. So you are free to completely ignore what God says about how to live a good life, about the best kind of life to live the right way to live in this world. You can, you can freely ignore that. That's, that's your perk. That's the kind of freedom the sin the slave master offers. Paul says, surely you wouldn't want to freelance for that kind of master. Whereas, think about our new master, verse 22. Think about our new master. Now you've been set free from sin. You've become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. We were trapped in a kind of downward spiral. Lawlessness, more lawlessness, more lawlessness. Romans 1, that ends in death. But now, united to Jesus, there's genuinely productive life, sanctification, growing more like Jesus day by day as we offer our bodies to righteousness and heading to eternity of eternal life, the, good, the real good life. So then, what wages does our new master pay? Verse 23. He doesn't actually pay wages at all. Did you notice that? Verse 23. The wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Just think about it. He just hands out gifts, free gifts. He's such a good boss that within milliseconds of joining the company, he's at your desk and he offers you a bonus. And it's not just kind of three grand, buy yourself a second-hand car. It's not just have a Caribbean cruise, have two amazing weeks of your life. He comes and offers eternal life, just like that, the moment you start. And you say, uh, there must be some mistake, I've just started I've not yet earned anything, any kind of bonus. He says, it's a gift. It's a free gift. You say, wow, uh, okay, okay, I promise I will make it up to you this year. This coming year, I will, I will make you glad you did that. You said that as a Christian? He says, it's already paid for. My son paid for it. 
We wanted to, together. You say, well, at least give me some performance targets. Something so we both know whether I'm doing a good job, whether I'm living up to, 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 to the trust you've shown in me. He says, you're not on probation. That's not how it works in my organization. He who didn't spare his own son to get us in, do you not think he's a generous boss? That's our new boss. And so Paul says, who do you want to work for tomorrow, this week, tonight? I'm not going to list out all the scenarios where we face temptation to sin. You'll know them yourself. And if you don't, chat to a friend. It's a good thing to talk about this as Christians together. To be honest, I think we all know where we're tempted. The issue is, do we know why to say no? It's an amazing thing. This is the only time in our lives where we'll face the choice of who to work for when it comes to sin. Before we're a Christian, no choice. In the new creation, wonderfully, we'll always choose rightly. The question is, right now, in this life, while we wait for Jesus, what will we choose? Who do we want to work for? I remember being deeply moved when a a pastor um, told me, the only time a Christian can glorify God whilst suffering is this life. Can't do that in the new creation when we're only and entirely in in the glorious kingdom of the new creation. It's true of sin as well. The only time we can glorify God in choosing to live for righteousness is this life. It won't always work. We will fall back, we will fall down, and we will need to ask for forgiveness and trust. But why wouldn't we keep, keep, keep offering our bodies as living sacrifices to such a good master? Let me lead us in prayer, and then we're going to sing of the amazing grace we've been shown. Father in heaven, We thank you that you are such a good God, that you are generous to us. We thank you for grace. We thank you that you've given us a free gift in your Son that is really free. And Father, we do pray for us as a church family, for each of us as individuals who know you. We pray that you would motivate us by your grace to offer ourselves to serve righteousness. We pray that when we fail, we would lean on your grace afresh. And we pray that we would keep striving to to love you and serve you. And Father, for any any here who don't yet know you, who don't yet know the freedom and, and joy of being fully forgiven, fully declared righteous, Lord, please would you help them to see there is no better gift. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.